Our scripture reading today comes from Exodus 20, 1 and 2, and verse 17. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. You may be seated. Good morning. As uh, I stand here and my heart rate rises and nerves kick in, um, I look out at you guys. I am from the north, so I say you guys. And I'm just thankful for Midlands Church and the desire to know him more and understand his truths. Um, So thank you for this opportunity to serve you. All right, let's learn things. Imagine sitting on the couch watching one of your favorite shows, and you don't pay for the ad-free version, so commercials tend to pop up. When commercial appears, uh, what commercials stick out to you the most? For me, it's the uh, Apple AirPod commercial um, called Bounce. When it starts playing, it draws me in. Maybe it's the mix of jazz, or the, and the beat, or maybe it's that he goes from just tired and mundane to happy and he looks relaxed. One time, as we were watching, I turned to a man and I said, man, if I'm not careful, after this commercial, I'm going to buy myself a pair of those. Um, I haven't yet. Now transition just walking around real life. I walk around and I see people with these in their ears. And honestly, there's lots of times where I think, Boy, I wish I had a pair of those. Advertising and marketing create in us a desire for something that others have. Is purchasing them wrong, even if I purchase them after the commercial? Maybe. It depends on my motives and how it consumes me and why I am am buying them. How can my desire to purchase them affect others in my relationship with God? Does my act of purchasing them affect my ability to purchase food for my family? Does my act of purchasing them, uh, does my perceived need for them make me pick up extra work to earn more money in which makes me neglect my family and my relationship with God? The more I think about it, the more complex it gets. Philip Graham Riken, in his book, Written in Stone, Ten Commandments, and Today's Moral Crisis, addresses the power of advertising and its effects when he says, no matter how much we have, we always want more, and our desire for newer and better things is almost insatiable. This is what makes advertising so successful, our inability to keep the Tenth Commandment. Has there ever been a more covetous country than the United States of America? The quintessential American writer Ralph Waldo Emerson said, things are in the saddle, and ride mankind. We usually call it chasing the American dream, but the Bible calls it coveting. When you are sitting at home watching TV and a commercial shows up, what comes to mind? When you're browsing Facebook and other forms of social media, how do you, <clears throat> how do you feel? This commandment is unique in that it refers to our desires more than specific actions. 
We may think we keep other commandments well enough, but this one shows us that we are not innocent. Paul, ex <clears throat> Paul explains this commandment, what this commandment reveals in Romans 7.7. 7. When I say, shall, <clears throat> when I, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Riken writes, as Luther recognized this commandment more than any other, convinces us we are sinners. It does this for the gracious purpose of showing us that we need a savior. We also see this in the narrative of the rich young ruler. Let's read the story. You know the commandment, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. That's found in Mark 10, 19 through 22. Do we go, ahead, go away disheartened when confronted with a sin, or do we change? Notice this commandment does not just state, thou shalt not covet, but instead lists some examples. Desiring is not wrong. It's what our desires are focused on that's the issue. Here is a definition of coveting that I found helpful in the, in the uh, book by Riken. He writes, to covet is to crave, to yearn for, to hanker after something that belongs to someone else. We covet whenever we set our hearts on anything that is not rightly ours. He then goes on to say, the Puritan Thomas Watson defined it as an insatiable desire of getting the world. By the world, he meant any of the things that this world has to offer as opposed to spiritual things that can only come from God. A more recent commentator has described coveting as an inordinate, ungoverned, selfish desire for something. Um, we will be kind of going through a bunch of verses today. Um, you might not be able to keep up. If you're interested in getting a list, just let me know, and I'll send it out. Um, so now let's get to the heart of the matter. My studies brought me all the way back to the beginning in Genesis. Early in the book, we see the first example of coveting and its effects in Genesis 3.6. But let's first look at Genesis 2.9. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God made every tree pleasant. They had an abundance of good things. The desire of some trees is a good thing. This shows God's provision. We are to be content in those provisions. <clears throat> now let's look at 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. 
With all those desirable things, what makes them want the fruit from the tree of good and evil? An ambitious desire leads them to eat the fruit. They desire wisdom like God, something they don't have. <clears throat> they had all other trees to choose from, but became discontent. This morning, we're going to look closer at what it means to covet. As we have seen in the, ser the series, 10 words, that the negative actions are replaced with the positive. The flip side of coveting is contentment. But how do we get to this place of contentment? We'll look at, we'll look at three things. The effects of coveting, the safeguard against coveting, which is contentment, and the foundation of contentment. First, we'll look at the effects. As I was studying, something quickly became evident. Coveting is internal, and it can lead to external results like the ten other Ten Commandments um, refer to. Mark Rucker in the Ten Commandments, Ethics for the 21st Century says, the desire of the heart always precedes our behaviors. Desire is the root from which every sin springs. Before someone murders or commits adultery or steals or bears fault witness, he first covets or longs for a different sort of circumstance. Let's look at Mark 7, 20 through 23. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and these Evil things come from within, and they defile a person. If we look at James 4.2, we see the connection between desire and murder and the effects on relationship. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. When hearing some of the other messages on the ten words, I noticed that they were able to go to the Sermon on the Mount which I thought was very helpful. Um, it, it showed the depth of the sin and gave it, gave it some um, illustrations. And I thought, well, maybe that could be helpful. So once I started looking at it, I realized there is nothing in there that says, you have heard it said, thou shalt not covet. Because of that, I thought, well, maybe I can't use these passages. <laughs> But then I looked closer and realized when dealing with the other commandments, Jesus was focusing on the inner desires. For example, Matthew 5, 27 through 28, Jesus was focusing, uh, he talks about coveting lustful intent when referencing adultery. Earlier in verse 21 through 22, he mentions the inner feelings of anger are connected to the commandment not to murder. Our coveting affects how we treat and relate to others. Rucker refers to some examples when he says, the narrative examples include the desire, planning, and then compensation of Nabal's field in Ahab, by Ahab in 1 Kings 21, and David's desire and then action to have Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11. Both of these examples, as well as the actions of Pharaoh in Genesis 12, 10 through 16, reveal the actions of covetous, covetousness by those in positions of power. When we look at these stories, we also see that two of these stories resulted in death, 
and there is a commandment that says, do not murder. In Micah 2.2, we see an example of coveting being at the root of social injustice. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away. They oppress a man in his house, a man and his inheritance. In Luke 3, John the Baptist calls those around him to repentance and teaches that just because they're Abraham's descendants, it doesn't mean they're right with God. Toward the end of this dialogue, he says, or the dialogue says, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. Look at his call for them to be content instead of taking money for others, from others. Contentment is the safeguard against coveting. If we look at 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10, we see a connection between godliness, contentment, and coveting. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I don't look at um, Facebook much anymore. When I did, I would see people going on vacation, having a great time. And I found myself, instead of being happy for them, I was jealous or envious. I had the desire to live that life and have those things and not be satisfied in what God had given me. In essence, I was not thinking of God's provisions for me and how they were sufficient. Facebook has many good aspects to it that I find myself missing out on, like finding updates on my friends up in Pennsylvania or around, around the country or world, or even knowing how to pray for them when they're going through difficult times. So I check now and then, and sometimes think I should check more often. Well, maybe I can, but just realizing when I have those feelings of envy, I need to pull away for a bit. As Paul says, if the law did not say you shall not covet, how would I be aware of this form of coveting and how it puts those desires over my desire for God? So I'm thankful um, for the scriptures that they reveal this to me. It's easy to say that I can be content or you should be content, but we cannot come to the place of contentment on our own. Contentment is gained due to an understanding of the sufficiency of Christ. Let's take a look at these verses. 2 Corinthians 12, 9-10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. These verses are a reminder that God's grace is sufficient. And when we are content, it is through grace and the power of God rests on us, and it's a strong testimony to God's glory. Philippians 4, 10 through 13. I rejoice in the Lord greatly, and now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. 
Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul knows that no matter what his situation is, um, God's in control. He's sovereign and he strengthens. He is also with us and is our helper. Trusting in his provisions bring about contentment. Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among them, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexual immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now I could have just read 5 and 6 where it says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? But I find it interesting that the verses before that talk about relationships with others. Understanding the sufficiency of God's grace leads to being generous to others as well. Hence, the commandment expressed through giving. Our contentment is expressed through giving. 2 Corinthians 9, 6-8 says, The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So contentment can lead to giving, and as we saw earlier, coveting can result in taking. Um, this verse in particular was challenging to me. Um, I would say that I give, I give happily to church, to missionaries, to friends in need, but do I do it all the time? No, I don't. And those times I don't give generous, generously reflect poorly on me and create, can create tension in our, in our home. Amanda is far more generous than I am. Um, if we get notice that someone has a baby or someone's in need, um, has something crazy going on in life, she's one of the first to mention, let's help them with a meal or get them something um, from a restaurant to help them out. And a lot of times I jump on board. Um, but other times I don't. Even though God has faithfully provided for us, I worry about how this generosity will affect our budget. Something so simple creates anxiety in me instead of remembering how God sufficiently provided for us over the years. Is my worry because of fear of not being able to buy things I want or live life to the level that matches what the culture around me has? It just got me thinking. Um, earlier, we looked at 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. If we look down a little further at verses 11 and 12, we see the things we should be pursuing. 
But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, goodness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So just not coveting isn't the answer. We need to replace it. We need to replace the desire to be rich and the love of money with the pursuit of godliness, contentment, and there's other things on the list. Here is a powerful illustration found in Jeremiah Burroughs' writing, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment banner of truth and trust. If you want to fill a vessel to take in any liquid, you must hold it still. For if the vessel stirs and shakes up and down, you cannot pour anything in it. You will say, hold still, that you may pour it in and not lose any. So if we would be vessels to receive God's mercy and would have the Lord pour his mercy into us, we must have quiet, still hearts. We must not have hearts hurrying up and down in trouble, discontented and vexing, but still and quiet. If a child throws and kicks up and down for a thing, you do not have it. You do not give it to him when he cries so. But first, you will have the child quiet. Even though you intend him to have what he cries for, you will not give it to him until he is quiet comes and stands still before you and is contented without it. Then you will give it to him. Truly, so does the Lord deal with us, for our dealings with him are just as your forward child are with you. Reichen also describes the source of contentment when he writes, contentment means waiting, wanting what God wants for us rather than what we want for ourselves. The secret to enjoying this kind of contentment is to be so satisfied with God that we are able to accept whatever he has or has not provided. To put it another way, coveting is a theological issue, ultimately. It concerns our relationship with God. Now let's look closer at the proper, the proper desires and the foundations that help us to be content. We have already observed the tension between desires Paul challenges us to walk by the Spirit, while at the same time acknowledges the tension between the Spirit and the flesh. In Galatians 5, 16 through 18, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other, to keep, for those are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. <clears throat> we are to pursue and desire God, God's word and his commandments. Let's look at a few other verses. Um, Psalms 19, 7 through 11. The law of God is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eye. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More desirable, than they, more desirable are they than gold, even much fine gold. 
sweeter also than honey and drippings of a honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And if we look at Psalms 73, 25 through 26, Who have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever. Desire in itself isn't wrong. We can experience properly motivated desires, um, as I mentioned earlier. Um, First Timothy, I found First Timothy 3, 1 through 2 interesting. They say, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. I find this interesting because it's a desire for a position, like desiring a position of authority in some ways, an overseer. Um, so when is it okay to desire positions versus it being just, I want power or I want to be in authority? Um, I, think, I think the difference is our motives. Are they because we want what others have out of envy or the desire for power and riches? Or is it out of a heart of service to others and a gratitude toward God's grace, his provision and trust in his strength? Does our pursuit of it damage relationships and hurt others? Or does it edify and lift up the body of Christ? In Hebrews 6, 11 through 12, we see the writer of Hebrews desires that the readers persevere, which shows he cares for their well-being. It says, as we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have full assurance of hope until the end. So we are to desire the things God has for us and trust in the provisions that he's already given us and evaluate our desires based on his teachings and our motives. So let's go back to the um, earlier AirPod example. If I do purchase them and you see me with them, how will you know what was at the core of that decision? On the surface, you can't tell. Maybe, it maybe I was able to purchase them because someone gave me money as a gift or gave them to me as a gift. Or maybe my other headphones died and I needed something to replace them. Um, <clears throat> or maybe I purchased them. The purchase could have been due to a coveting desire that damaged relationships in my pursuit of it. It is difficult for others to tell and that is what makes coveting hard to admit and so easy to push under the rug. Moeller writes in his book, Words from the Fire, Martin Luther said that this last commandment is addressed not to those whom the world considers wicked rogues, but precisely to the most upright, to people who want to be commended as honest and virtuous because they have not offended against previous commandments. The seductive power of coveting is that it affects those who otherwise look morally upright, those who go to church, those who preach and teach the word. Coveting is so insidious. Luther added that we know how to put up a fine front to conceal our rascality. What we have in the grace that has been revealed to us is something the angels desire, yet we often 
forget how good it is and desire other things. Let's look at First uh, Peter 1, 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours search and inquire carefully, inquiring what persons, person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which the angels long to look. Wow, we truly have a sufficiency in him and in, and in the grace that's been given to us. So often, like Adam and Eve in the garden, we don't realize the more valuable things around us that we already have, but instead crave what we don't. And as we look through the scriptures, we see the devastating toll it has taken on mankind. In the fallen world, our hearts are sinful. On the surface, it might look like we're living a holy life if we are not aware. But if we're not aware of the dangers of coveting desires, the results can be damaging. The Ten Commandments are a gracious gift that gives us warning, lets us, let us not brush it off and say, I get this, but instead pray like David does in Psalms 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way in the way everlasting. Now earlier we looked at Romans 7, 7 through 8. In the earlier part of chapter 7, we see this discouragement over the battle of sin, but we read further, we see the beautiful picture of hope that we have. So let's take time to look at it, but go a little further into chapter 8. Wretched man, man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin of death. For God has done what the law, wicked, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This morning, let us thank our Heavenly Father for graciously showing us how sinful and broken we are, but not stopping there. He uses this verse to draw... He uses this revelation to draw us to his glorious gift via the work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Mahler reminds us of these things when he writes, If the Ten Commandments goes to the interior, then we understand that for those who follow Christ, his lordship gets even closer to the interior. 
And this is why we so desperately need the word. This is why we so desperate we are so dependent upon the indwelling spirit, because the only means of rescue is from above. <clears throat> now each Sunday we take a time of reflection and participate in sharing of communion. This time is for those who are trusting in him and are part of the family of Christ. If you're, if you're not there yet but are here, we're very thankful you're here, but, um, but please refrain from joining us in this part of the service. But as, as we do this, let's now look toward the power of the cross. What, the powerful, what a powerful reminder each week of the work of Christ and the gospel. As we take communion this morning, let's remember that only Jesus fills us and without him, we will keep striving to satisfy our desires by searching elsewhere in an unhealthy way. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time to look into your word and just reading about your, your provision and your grace and how it works in us. I pray that um, you might help us this week as we just search, search, um, search our motives and, um, and work through any covetous desires we might have. But in the process of that, remember your grace and forgiveness and the blessings you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen.